Heavenly Father, thank you that you sought your holy bride, the church. Thank you that you came and sought us. And with your blood, you bought us so that we might belong to you, so that we might be your children. Father, I pray that you will build your church at Tallowood. We thank you, Lord. You're building your church all over the world. You're building your church all over this city. Thank you for the privilege of being a part of that church, Lord, and seeing what you are doing right here. And Lord, our answer to you for your will for this church is yes, do what you purpose to do. And we will give you thanks in the matchless name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. God is good all the time. I forgot to do that one time this week at Vacation Bible School, and one of the kids took me to task, so I'm renewed in my effort. If I say it, don't leave me hanging, okay? I mean, help me out, because uh, I want to say that and affirm the goodness of God. Well, I learned at an early age that uh, fatherhood is somehow mystically connected with sacrifice. You know what I mean. Um, I remember, and I think about uh, Bill Cosby's little book about fatherhood. Did you know they did a, a survey and asked... Who is the number one father in television? And people voted for Cliff Huxtable as number one, as the number one father. And uh, so he has some uh, credibility, I suppose, uh, with folks as he talks about fatherhood. And he tells about how uh, his father has changed now that he's a grandfather. And this is my same story with my own dad, that, that my father, when I would ask him as a child, you know, may I have 50 cents? He would say, do you know that when I was a boy... I used to walk 23 miles to go and milk cows, and the farmer I worked for couldn't afford a bucket, so I would hold it in my little hand, you know, and I would carry it eight miles to the farmer's house and put it in a glass, and, and you're asking me for money, and I never got money, and now this man walks into my house, and before he says, boo, he pulls out his wallet and says, look what grandpa has for his grandchildren. He sends us money so that we will take Casey to go and ride go-karts. I'm not making that up. He like wants her to be the next Danica Patrick. I mean, he thinks she's got potential as a race car driver. And he just is that way. And I was thinking about that, uh, that dad who was giving that speech to his son. And his father was there. The grandfather was there. And the father said, you know, I walked five miles in the snow, uphill, both ways to get to school. And his dad said, that's nothing. When I was a boy, they didn't even have school. I walked five miles and had to turn around and just come back home. It's hard to top your dad in the sacrifice stories, isn't it? Cosby goes on to say in that book that mothers get a better deal than fathers in the Mother's Day, Father's Day thing. Of course, my wife says every day is Father's Day. But anyway, you know, if you think about it, mothers are more organized, Cosby said. So, you know, they'll, they'll write a list of things they want and give it to the kids and say, go to your father and get the money and buy these things for me. And they get what they want. Cosby said, I have five kids. I give each of my kids $20 and say, go buy something for dad. They get together, pool their resources, buy me two packages of Fruit of the Loom t-shirts. They wrap one apiece, so I have five gifts of one t-shirt. They give one to the Salvation Army as the leftover, and I'm walking around in a new t-shirt, and they're walking around with $90 of my money. See, that's sacrifice. When I think about a father's sacrifice in the Old Testament, I think of the story of Job. Would you open your Bibles with me to the book of Job? I'm going to read just the first five verses with you. It's sort of the calm before the storm in Job's life. And I want you to see the way he related to his family. And perhaps we'll learn something about a father's sacrifice together this morning. Let's stand together as we read God's word. 
Job chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. The word of the Lord. In, in the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. The man was blameless and upright. He feared God, shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. Thank you. You may be seated. Job might have been time's first man of the year. He sort of lived a perfect life. Uh, If we look at his life, the description of him, just first notice that he had a great relationship with God. He walked with God with integrity and purity of heart. He was upright and straight. He, uh, He turned from sin. He had a great relationship with God. And then it goes on to say he had a great relationship with what must have been thought of as the perfect family. I mean, 10 kids, that was kind of a a perfect number, but seven is a perfect number. He had seven sons. He had three daughters, which is another perfect number. He was just sort of a, the the perfect kind of family. And the only way I think it could have been more perfect after the last year and a half, I would say, is if he had had seven daughters and three sons, that would have been a little bit more perfect. But even so, he's got this perfect family and everything is going well in the family. And beyond that, he has all kinds of wealth. He's got all the money he will ever need for the rest of his life. Like an NBA basketball player, he couldn't spend it all if he wanted to. I mean, there's just no way. And he's got all of this wealth and it's sort of the perfect life. But even the person who's doing all the right things, notice that his wealth does not turn his heart away from God, which is a wonderful accomplishment in its own right, that he doesn't turn from God because of his wealth. And still in this perfect life, A thunderstorm is about to come. The winds are about to blow and lightning is about to strike his life. And and in a very short period of time, he will lose all of his children. He will lose all of his wealth. But he does not lose his God. Because even in the darkest moments of his life, when he is argumentative with God, God will not let him go. And I find in Job's relationship with his kids, and in particular, his concern about the possibility that his kids might be sinning against God, a message for us today, an important word for us, because I don't know any parents who are unconcerned about the spiritual lives of their kids. The the folks I know in this church, like me, are desperately concerned that our kids would grow up and honor the Lord. And when they were little, it was kind of easier. You know, when they were the size of these kids on the the platform this morning, you could just kind of hold them by the shoulders and turn them which way you wanted them to go and tell them where to go. And, you know, even though they might be sort of standing up on the inside, they would would, uh, sit down and do what you wanted them to do. Have you experienced what I've experienced, though, when kids get old enough to leave home? They have freedom, and the amount of control we have over their lives is less and less. How do we help our kids not to sin? And here's my word to you. If, 
if our uh, perspective is that of entitlement, we sort of claim our rights and say, you're my kid and you need to do what I want you to do. I don't know that that's the way to get them to go the right way. But I find in the example of Job a picture of the love of our heavenly father. It's in that word sacrifice. The fact that he offered sacrifices for each of his kids every time they had a party means that he had individual, he had constant, it was his regular custom, constant concern about their spiritual lives. And I even find in his story a truth which may help us to help our kids turn away from sin. The first thing I notice is that his example shows us that we can show our kids the way not to sin by shunning evil in our own lives. And you see it just in the story of Job. He's a man, by the way, he's not just, this is not just a story. It actually starts in the Hebrew. Usually the Hebrew starts with a verb, but instead it starts with a man. Just to remind us, he's a man. And as a man, he is susceptible to the same kinds of temptations anybody else might be. And yet, though he is not perfect, I don't want to paint him as, you know, uh, the perfect person before Jesus. But it's interesting to hear the four descriptive terms that he was right with God on the inside. It says he was blameless. That's the word the mom integrity. There was wholeness and integrity in his life. It wasn't like he was right with God in one area, but wrong with God in another area. He was upright. He feared God been reading the book of Proverbs with our younger son, Chase, one chapter a day. We started on June the 1st and we discussed it sometimes together at night. I'd encourage you, if you can get uh, somebody in your family to take you up on it, start on July 1st and read the book of Proverbs with them one chapter a day with your family and you'll complete it in the month of July. And one of the things you find in Proverbs is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And it's in this fear of the Lord that he shuns evil. He turns away from sin. Another way might be to say he just had perfect integrity in his life. And what's important about that is because he walked the talk, because he lived the way he was supposed to live, his words of challenge to his kids about their spiritual lives did not fall on deaf ears. I mean, it does no good at all to talk to our kids about not breaking the law if every time they see us get in the car... We drive faster than the speed limit. See, that's a problem in our lives. It's a problem of rebellion and disobedience. And it it really affects our relationship. So if we say to our kids, you know, you need to obey the law. You know, the law says you have to be 21. If you want to go down that road, then be sure that you're walking the talk in that road. And I love about Job that he sort of sets this example so they know what he stands for. Everybody who knew Job knew that he loved the Lord, that he wanted to obey the Lord, that he served the Lord with his whole heart, with his whole life. And that's not a guarantee that our kids won't sin. Don't hear me saying that. But it does give them the opportunity to see the truth lived out in our lives so that we can be obedient to God in every area. And here's, the, here's what we fear, that somehow our disobedience would become the door for our kids' sins. Uh, John Donne's one of my favorite poets, and uh, he has a, a, a poem called A Hymn to God, Our Heavenly Father. And in that poem, he says, Lord, don't let my sin become permission for somebody else to sin, become the door 
for their disobedience. This is our fear, isn't it? It's what Alistair Begg was saying in that little snippet of a sermon that I heard uh, when I was in my wife's car getting it worked on and she has satellite radio and I turned it on and just heard the last paragraph of his sermon and he said, if we are arbitrary with our sins, we'll be arbitrary with our kids' sins. And if they hear godliness in our words but see wickedness in our lives, we'll be pointing them to heaven but leading them to hell. This is our great fear. We don't want to be the doorway for our kids to become disobedient to God. And so we show them the way by shunning evil, by turning away from sin in our own lives. Last night after the service, one of my good friends who's, who's uh, going up um, to Idaho to run a triathlon, a full triathlon next week, and we were talking. He said, you know, Dwayne, when you talk about dads that way, he said, I just, my own dad just really... You know, he didn't walk the talk. I mean, his great ambition in life was to get to drink with his grandchildren when they were still underage. That was his, I want to drink a beer with my grandsons. That's what I want to do, you know? And that was, he said, you know, when I, when I think about that and you talk about Job, I just, you know, I have a disconnect there. And, you know, it may be that your dad was a person of great integrity who walked the talk and you can look back, maybe you can look back generations and see, you know, grandfathers and others who walked with the Lord and just say, you know, they, they just gave me a great example or maybe. Maybe your story is different than that. And maybe you learned things from father that really didn't uh, stand you in good stead with the Lord. But here's my word to you. Even if you don't have a perfect, uh, none of us have a perfect earthly father. We do have a perfect heavenly father who shows us the way. I mean, isn't, isn't, isn't he um, a God of integrity? Isn't he upright? Doesn't he shun evil? This is our heavenly father and he is our example. And so we can provide that example to our kids so they can follow in our steps. The second thing I notice is that that his kids, when they got together in verse four and they had their uh, parties together, maybe it was a birthday party. I don't know, but each of them. The kids got along. Isn't this glorious when sons and daughters, you know, Psalm 133, how good and pleasant it is when children dwell together in unity and his daughters and sons get along and the sons invite the daughters. I was, I was just gloriously happy recently when Chase came home and he brought some friends home to swim and, and he brought the friends, little sisters with him so that Casey would have somebody to play with. I said, son, you have built a bridge to your sister. This is a good thing. Go and and do this again. This is, this is good because we want, and I noticed my father even is concerned about us to this day. If my brothers and I get together and we get together and watch uh, an Astros or Rangers, some half of us are Rangers fans and half of us are Astros fans. If we get together, my dad will always call and say, so how'd it go? Did you, you know, and he's always, and one time I remember we had an argument when we were adults and, and my dad called me and he said, you boys need to pray about that. And then you need to work it out. And for me, it was just a treasure to have a dad call and say, you boys need to pray about that. I mean, that was just a great word for my dad on that occasion because we worry about our kids, don't we? We worry about the possibility. What exactly is Job worried about? He's worried that they might curse God in their hearts. It's not just that they'll say a curse word. It's as bad as that can be. And by the way, we live in a very profane culture. I mean, if Isaiah could say, I live among a people of unclean lips, we can say that to the 10th power. There is a, a pervasive profanity in our world. It's in our culture. It's in our entertainment. And, and if you and I wink at it, we, we are not doing our, our children in the next generations a, a service by doing so. But his fear is greater than that. It's not just that they'll curse God, but that they'll curse God in their hearts. Remember, the heart is not just a place of feeling in Hebrew thought. It's a place of volition. It's a place of decision. His concern is that somehow in their hearts, they will reject God, that they will rebel against God. 
Uh, Tim Kimmel has written a book called When Christian Kids Rebel. And in that book, he talks about how sometimes we confuse cultural patterns with rebellion. We see a kid with his hat on backwards and we think, oh, that kid's a rebellious kid. Or we look at hair length. I'm not sure hair length tells us much these days. We've chosen not to fight that battle with our kids. And, and sometimes their hair has been relatively long, but our oldest son now, he just cuts his hair with like a number one. He just, you know, and I'm like, you need, you need to let your hair grow out a little bit longer. You know, we have this argument with each other and he's like, you know, dad, I just, you know, it's just easier to maintain. I said, man, if you had my hair, you would not shave all that off. I'm telling you, you would be, you would be grateful for that. And, uh, and our, our younger son, you know, and he's just gotten a haircut recently and thank you for all the kudos because now he got another haircut and it's just a great thing. But the, the bottom line is that's not the measure of a person's spirituality. The real measure is whether or not they are antagonistic toward God. That's what rebellion is, Kimmel says. If they're antagonistic toward the things of God, if they're antagonistic toward the people whom God has placed over them in authority, that would be something that you and I ought to be concerned about. I'm telling you, that's what Job's worried about. He's not worried that somebody said a swear word. As bad as that would have been, what he's worried about is that somehow in the midst of their prosperity, They may have forgotten the God who has provided everything they need, and they may turn their back on God. That's what they fear. I'll tell you, that's what I fear. That's my great concern, that having walked with God, they might. And this is why I think he reaches out to them and stays in contact with them. He doesn't let them go, does he? So he's not invited to the party. He can't micromanage. He doesn't know what they say to each other. He can't control what they drink, but he can send to them and say, purify yourselves, care about your own spirituality because I, your father, care about your spirituality, consecrate yourselves because they have to own it themselves. And at the same time, he can say to them, I'm thinking about you. I love what Stu Weber said to his kids. He said uh, three things. I love you. I'll do anything for you. And nothing you ever do will make me stop loving you. Notice the way he sends to them. We can do this. We can, we can sanctify our kids by prayer and by compassion for them. I have a friend who pastors a church very near to our church, a pastor who pastors that church. And he told me, I never knew this. He told me one day we were sitting at Rudy Lechner's eating German food. And he said, you know, When I was in college, I absolutely turned my back on God and the things of God, and I got in a lot of trouble. I left college. I moved to Montrose with a bunch of friends, and I was just hanging out down there in the district. And one day, he said, I had not been in touch with my family for months. And one day, he said, I walked out the door and said, I can't live this way anymore. And he said, I was walking down the street, and I recognized a car go by me. And it was my father's car and he made a U-turn and he came back and he rolled down the window and he said, you want to get in? And I said, yes, I do. And he said, that was a turning point in my life because my father, even though I wasn't contacting him, was trying to stay in touch with me. And he knew as he drove down that street that he might See me on that day. And God brought all that together. And my word to you is don't let them go. No matter what they're doing, no matter where they've been, 
Don't let them go. I love that hymn, don't you? Oh, love that will not let me go. This is God's love for us. This is Job's love for his kids. He's staying in touch with them. He wants them not to rebel against God. And he sends them and says, you got to own it for yourself. Sanctify yourselves before the Lord. And he stays in touch with them. We won't always be able to control what our kids do, but we can control what we do and how we respond to them when they make a mistake. I read Joe Bailey's uh, story of his son, Tim. Uh, Joe Bailey, a poet, um, preacher from years ago, who, who says there was a time when his son was in such uh, rebellion against God, he had to go to him and say, you can't live that way and live in my house. I love you too much to, to act like that's okay. You can't live that way and live in my house. And he actually loved his son enough to, to allow his son to go his own way. And he said there, there came a point when one night he was so worried about his son. You know what it's like to lay awake at night and wonder whether your kids are okay, what they're doing? And he said one night at two o'clock in the morning, the phone rang and somebody, anonymous caller, said, your son's been arrested for drug possession. He's in jail And Bailey at two o'clock in the morning got up and drove to the Cook County Jail and and asked for his son. And they had not heard of his son. He thought, maybe I heard wrong. He went to all the jails in that area. And finally, he drives up to the house where his son lives with a number of other kids. And he walks upstairs to his son's room. And he opens the door. And there is his son lying there asleep. And he goes over and wakes him up and says, Tim, are you okay? Tim wakes up and says, yeah, Dad, I'm okay. Why? What's, What's going on? I got a phone call that said you were in jail. And I just had to come and see for myself and make sure you were okay. And Joe said he kissed his son on the forehead and said, I love you, and walked down the stairs. And sometime later, this son, Tim, who, by the way, is now a pastor in Indiana, he said, Tim came to him and said, Dad, it was your kiss and those three words, I love you, that brought me back home to you. I know, I know. There are times when our kids are so far from God and, and, and everything inside us is screaming. What are you thinking? Sometimes we think, how could you do this to us? How could you do this to yourself? And in those moments, if we can hold on to the love of the heavenly father and, and, and let our love be the love that will not let them go. We may have to let them go their own way. Job had to let his kids have their parties without him, but He never forgot about them and he reached out to them and he stayed in contact with them and he consecrated them with prayer. And as long as we can pray for our kids, we still have influence on their lives. Did you know that our kids know that we know that they're going to sin? Our kids know that we know that they're going to sin. What they want to know is whether when they do, we're going to love them with the unconditional love of our heavenly father, hold them accountable. Sometimes let them experience the consequences for their choices. But at the same time, never, ever let them think for a moment that we have ever stopped loving them for a second. When we do that, we are close to the heart of the heavenly father. What does Paul write to the Romans in chapter two? He said, it is his kindness and his tolerance and his patience and the richness of his mercy that draws us to repentance. What drew you back to God? Wasn't it his love? Wasn't it his grace? Don't despise today. If you hear his voice, maybe you're here today and it's your parents who are praying for you to come back to God today. If you hear his voice, 
Do not harden your heart. We can show our kids the way. We can sanctify them by praying for them. And then I want you to notice the way he sacrifices for his kids. And don't hear me saying this morning, you know, we need to go and sacrifice an animal. Thankfully, have you read the book of Hebrews? Jesus did that once and for all. We don't have to do that. We do, however, offer the sacrifice of praise. And our kids need to see us. Hebrews thirteen fifteen. do that. We do have to do good and share with others. And when our kids see that, Hebrews 13, 16, they'll see that God is pleased with those kinds of sacrifices. We do have to offer our lives as living sacrifices to God. No, we don't kill animals anymore in order to atone for sins because Jesus Christ is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. But if our kids can see us living lives that are offerings to God, they may learn to give their lives to God as well. My friend James Tippett came and taught our adult vacation Bible school this week. Remember, he was our intern before Matt and before Scott, after Mike. He was our intern for a season. He's been a pastor up in Waco. And, uh, and he said to me that he heard Francis Chan preach at a conference, Exponential, a church planning conference recently. And Chan told about these Korean missionaries who went to Afghanistan to share the gospel of Jesus Christ And they knew when they went that if they were captured, it would not be well with them. And when they got there, they were sharing Jesus with people, giving people Bibles. They'd given out all their Bibles. They just had one Bible left. The pastor had his Bible and they were caught. And when the pastor knew they'd been caught, he opened his Bible and he tore out 20 sections of that Bible and gave one to each of them and said, stuff it in your pocket because they're going to throw you in a pit and some of you are going to lose your lives, but it'll be all that you have to hold on to in that time. And, and Chan said some of them did lose their lives. Some of them were executed, but some of them were set free, rescued. And those who were set free, Francis Chan had the chance to meet them. And, you know, what do you say to somebody who's endured that kind of experience? He said to them, I thank you for your suffering for Christ. Aren't you glad you're free? I'm so glad you've been set free. I'm so glad you didn't lose your life. And he said, those missionaries said to him, do you know what we miss? We miss the intimacy that we felt with God when we were in the pit. We felt closer to God in that time when all we had was just a portion of the Bible to hold on to. We felt closer to God and we shared, Philippians, we shared in the fellowship of the sufferings of Jesus Christ. And Francis Chan said in that conference, what do I know about that? What have I ever sacrificed? What would you give up in order to help your kids not to sin? What kind of sacrifice do our kids see in our lives? And let me just tell you, if our dream is the American dream and our kids see that our dream is the American dream, this is no miracle. Their dream will be the American dream. But what if, what if our dream is the Christian dream? What if our dream is about, about exalting Christ in everything that we are and becoming living sacrifices? Nothing wrong with being free in America to worship God, but how do we steward that freedom for the maximum benefit of the kingdom of God? Because whatever that is, believe me when I say it's not only best for us, but it's best for our kids as well. To be those who so love God that we would give up our lives for his sake, not in one fell swoop, but sort of whatever he needs, whenever he needs it. That's the kind of sacrifice that our kids need to see. Because when we sacrifice in that way, we are holding up to them this truth. What does John write in 1 John chapter 2? My children, I don't want you to sin. Little children, I don't want you to sin. 
But if anybody does, we have an advocate, one who speaks to the Father on our behalf. And when our kids see us living as living sacrifices, then they'll understand the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on their behalf. Dr. Phil Littleford took his son and a couple friends fishing in a plane in Alaska, had pontoons on the bottom so they could land on the water. They did in a bay. The fishing was magnificent. Their plane was about 23 feet offshore. And so they took some time to eat some of the fish. And then when the tide came in, uh, their boat that had been on the ground had floated again. They got in the boat and they were going to take off. They didn't know that one of the pontoons had been punctured and filled with water. And when they tried to take off, the plane crashed out in the bay. The two other men were strong enough to swim to shore. So was Dr. Littleford, but his 12-year-old son was not strong enough. And the last time they saw Dr. Phil Littleford, he was arm in arm with his son being swept out to sea because he would not let his son go. Let this be our story, that we would sacrifice anything. Because the story of the gospel is God would rather die than live without us. He would rather let his only son die than live without us. And he he has lavished us with his love. He has become the atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is the story of the gospel. And if we can hold this before our kids, there is the chance that they will see how much it cost God that he bought us, not with perishable things like silver and gold, because by the way, our silver and our gold will perish. But he bought us with the precious blood of his only son so that we might be redeemed. And if we have received that love and we show them that love, there is the chance that they might not sin against God. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your amazing, powerful presence in this place. Thank you for redeeming love that will not let us go. Thank you for not letting us go. Help us not to let go of our kids and our grandkids but to show them the way and sanctify them in sacrifice for the gospel of Jesus Christ, for your glory alone, I pray in Jesus' name.